Hi everyone, welcome to the Peg Leg Podcast. I'm Greg Marshall, and I have another story for you. This is episode 11. It's called A True Story About the First Black Child to Attend a White School in My City. Preparing this episode has been very emotional for me. Her story is very deep and meaningful and important. And as I've worked on it, I've witnessed so many things that are related and relevant. News stories, conversations, statistics, communal and personal narratives. I can't say all of what I'm thinking and feeling at once, so I'm going to keep it simple and just tell her story. The most important part of it for me is the sacred moment of remembering that happens. You'll see what I mean. One day in 1958, six-year-old Ingrid Carter was sitting with her father in the front room of their home. I imagine her sitting there looking up at her dad, wondering why his face was so focused and why his words were extra gentle yet so firm. He said, I promise I will not let anything happen to you. He was asking her if she would be willing to change schools to become one of the first black children to attend a white school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Her dad said, I need you to do this. It's going to have a great impact on the world. She wanted to say no, but her daddy was her hero. He explained to her that right now, all black kids go to black schools and all white kids go to white schools. He wanted her to have more opportunities. Ingrid's mother was not happy. She did not want her baby to see what this would cause. She didn't want Ingrid to experience the extreme pain of racism and rejection so intimately and so young. I think about the tension that must have filled their home. Ingrid's father feeling called to lead his family onto the frontier of justice. Her mother feeling afraid of what will happen. And Ingrid at such a young age reading the body language and hearing the tone of voice being used by her parents and their friends. Ingrid said yes. On Monday morning, it was time. Ingrid's mom pulled out a cute little raincoat and some rain boots for Ingrid to wear. The little girl was confused. Mom, it's not raining. Why am I wearing these things? I imagine her mom not wanting her daughter to feel fear in that moment. So she didn't answer. Ingrid put on the rain gear and waited for the police car to arrive. Officer Cheney, a friend of Ingrid's dad, pulled up to the house. Ingrid and her dad walked out of their home and got into the police car together. As they drove through the neighborhoods, she looked out the window, probably half daydreaming and half wondering what was about to happen. Her father undoubtedly felt so many emotions. Fear, second-guessing himself, a sense of purpose. And all of those feelings were overshadowed by a wholehearted promise and determination to protect his daughter. When they pulled up to the school, it seemed to Ingrid that the entire police department was there. And in all directions stood a sea of white men and women 
and children who immediately started yelling at the girl, calling her names, insulting her, screaming vicious words, telling her she is not welcome. People yelled into Ingrid's face, promising to kill her, that they would poison her food. Then she felt the pelting of eggs and rotten fruit, white hands through physical objects, their mouths through hate with no regard for the humanity of this daughter, this child. And as old tomatoes and broken eggs slid down the side of her raincoat, I imagine her thinking of her mother's love and knowing. To these people, Ingrid was not made in God's image. She was not included in the we the people statements of our nation. She was less than, not worthy of stepping foot in that building because she was black. Her father's black hand held hers all the way from the police car to the school doors. He too was pelted and yelled at and hated. He held her hand tighter and tighter, speaking to her with his palms and fingers and eyes that she was not alone. She was going to be okay. This scene, those hateful words, the rotten fruit and objects were aimed and thrown at this sweet child day after day after day. Each night after school, Ingrid would sit with her father and talk about what was happening. He would remind her of what her bravery meant to their community and to the world. And every night, she would agree to do it again. There were actually two other African-American boys who joined her at this white school. None of the white families would allow their children to share a classroom or lunchroom with Ingrid and the other two children. So they had their own teacher, their own classroom, and no one interacted with them. She remembers her teacher being kind. She thinks back and believes her teacher felt it was her responsibility to make sure these three children were safe. Over the course of the year, some of the white children got used to seeing Ingrid and her two classmates, and little by little, they began interacting with each other. Things improved there slowly. Ingrid's father had a belief that he shared with her. He said, there is no greater investment that you can make than in the life of a child. And as she grew up, she embodied that belief with her own children and the many children she's helped to educate in a school that is near the neighborhood where she grew up. I met Ingrid in 2016 when I was asked to produce a short film about her story. As I listened to her story, I couldn't help but feel amazed at the reality that this all happened not that long ago. Some of the people who were throwing rotten fruit and eggs and objects at her, flinging hateful words, some of those people are still alive. Their children are certainly still alive. This felt like a history that should be further out of reach. It shouldn't be touchable from where I am, but it is. I can reach out and touch it. I can hear it. 
its sounds still echo in the words of this living woman named Ingrid Carter. At one point when we were filming outside of the school, Ingrid stood looking out into the street where she had walked hand in hand with her dad not that many years ago. I stopped asking questions and I watched her. She closed her eyes, tears formed and began falling. I felt like I was on holy ground, like this was sacred, like I was seeing something that was too precious and too valuable for me to witness. But I wanted everyone I know to be there with me. I wanted to be transported to that first morning. I wished we could all be there next to her so that we could know what it was like to feel the fullness of that venom flowing through the veins of our community. To feel the recentness of it, the freshness of it, and to stand with her against that tidal wave of irrational anger and racism. Last night I was talking to some neighbors and I remembered a strange encounter I had a few years ago. Laura and I lived in an apartment for a couple of months while our house was being remodeled. The apartment we lived in was in a suburb of our city. One night I parked in front of our apartment and saw a group of young men and women cooking out. They were in their mid-twenties. I struck up a conversation with them and told them we actually lived in the city and we were going back as soon as our house was ready. Right away, one of them said, oh, so you probably know black people, like they're your neighbors and stuff. I said, yeah, we have black neighbors and friends, why? And then he said, we don't like black people out here. I looked at the other young adults who were there to see if they would react and correct their friend but all they did was put ketchup on their hot dogs and sip their beers. They didn't disagree with him. They looked comfortable with his words. I felt sick to my stomach. Their judgment on the African-American community had the same taste, the same poison that I saw and felt in Ingrid's story. I've been told that racism doesn't exist in our country. That racism is not part of our DNA as a nation. I can't agree because I've seen otherwise. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen it through the study of history. I've seen it through statistics and data. I've seen it through the eyes of my friends. I've seen it through the words and memories of Ingrid Carter. I think many of us who are white often don't see these things because we don't have a reason to look. The system, the culture, the governing norms of our world work for us. They don't work for everyone else. And I honestly don't know why that's controversial to say. But apparently it is. Tonight I spoke with Ingrid, asking her permission to share this story. She said yes, 
and began telling me story after story about her childhood and conversations she had on a front porch with her great-great-grandmother who was 13 when slavery ended. She talked about conversations with her great-great-uncle who was a slave who walked with a limp and carried bent-over hands from the blows that came from his master. She talked about a recipe passed down through her family, a recipe created in the big house where one of her family members made meals for the master and his family. And then she told me about one day recently when she was driving through Milwaukee and she saw a young man pulled over and being held by the police. He looked scared. She could see he was physically shaking. She passed by and then her heart demanded that she turn around and go back. She parked behind the officer and let them know she was there to make sure he was okay because he was visibly frightened. Ingrid asked the boy for his mom's number and she called his mom to tell her she was there with him. That young man was eventually let go by the police. He had been pulled over for not using his turn signal correctly. But these are just stories, right? What do they mean to you? If you were to hear a hundred more of them, what would it mean to you? A thousand of them. A million. What do they mean and what do we do in response? I guess that's what we all have to decide. And we'll never see the path clearly until we're willing to enter that sacred and painful space of remembering. To be quiet enough and curious enough to hear and believe the stories that echo across our entire country. If you'd like to see the short film we did about Ingrid and her work with a school called Milwaukee College Prep, you'll find a link to it in the description of this episode. Um, while talking to Ingrid tonight, I realized that one of my next episodes needs to be a conversation with her. We all need to hear her stories directly from her. So I promise to do my best to make that happen soon. Until then, I'll leave you with these words from Ingrid taken from the video that we created. Here she's speaking to three young children about her experience and what she wants them to know. Peace, my friends. My father said that there is no greater investment that you can ever make than in the life of a child. I concur with that now. Now that I've lived and I've had my own children, there is no greater investment. And so I come to school every day and I'm really tough on you guys. I require a lot from you because I went through a lot for you to have it. This is where my emotions come in is because what I endured during that time was really, really tough. And so when I see a person not taking advantage of that, and it makes me say, no, you will not behave that way because someone had blood, sweat, and tears for you to have what you have. It's my calling to make sure that you can be that doctor, to make sure that you can be that lawyer. You're able to go anywhere you want to go. You can do anything you want to do, and it doesn't matter that your skin is black. 
And as long as I have breath in my body, I'm going to do just that.